Welcome to the Historical Motion Picture Organization, a podcast in which I interpret ancient historical events as if they were the basis for dramatized HBO-style productions. Our first fictional HBO production, The Poison King, will explore the life and times of King Mithridates VI of Pontus in his struggles against the Roman Republic and his attempts to preserve the existence of the waning Hellenistic world. As we enter episode 6 of our fictional HBO series, The Poison King, I think it's time we assess where we are in terms of narrative structure. Episodes 4 and 5 have been a relentless series of gruesome, highly destructive battles. Over the course of two hours, we've worn our viewers out with successive fighting at Rhodes, Athens, Piraeus, Chironea, and then finally Orchomenus. These showdowns represent what we might refer to as the obstacle and ascending action areas of Act 2. I think we need a breather, as do our cast of characters. Episode 6 begins with Mithridates facing widespread discontent from across his realm. This man was said to be the saviour of the Hellenistic world, but so far all he's done is spread war and destruction across Anatolia and Greece, and he now faces the imminent prospect of a Roman invasion of Anatolia itself. A scene with a council of war between Mithridates and his top-ranking officials gives us a great scene to discuss such macro problems. Gordius and Doroilus argue about how best to proceed from here. Doroilus, becoming increasingly guilt-ridden over time because of the Asiatic Vespers, suggests approaching the Romans for terms. Gordius, the tough Cappadocian trigger man, scoffs at the idea. Mithridates seems quietly unnerved by Doroilus's regret. Is his old friend starting to wilt? There's also a surprise announcement. Archelaus has somehow survived the disaster at Orchomenus and has gotten back to the king. Maybe there'll be a little suspicion here. How many times has this guy survived encounters that have killed tens of thousands? What's the deal with this fella? Nobody could be that lucky, Mithridates ponders. It's revealed that Mithridates has established tyrants to govern as puppet rulers in many major cities across Anatolia suggesting to reviewers that he now must rule by force, not favour, and that his hold over the Greek world has been somewhat loosened. Where is the salvation that those comets of yesteryear promised? Rumblings of discontent are everywhere, and Mithridates begins to become more paranoid and erratic. But just because you're paranoid doesn't mean someone isn't out to kill you. A plot is discovered wherein a Galatian puppet ruler, Poridorix, plan to physically pick up Mithridates and throw him off a balcony into a ravine below. Mithridates responds by massacring the people he has ruling Galatia for him, and leaves Porodorix's body uncovered to be eaten by the crows. But the most worrying thing is Galatia isn't that far from Pontus itself. A mortal existential threat continues to hover over the map of Mithridates' realm. Mithridates' suspicious eyes continue to scan the subject peoples of his realm. Dozens of Greek city-states had supported him in the initial invasion of Greece, but many had immediately switched allegiance back to Rome the minute Sulla's legions appeared. This causes Mithridates to seethe with resentment. What happened to the revolution? 
What became of the great pan-Hellenistic cause that so many had pledged their support for? Were these city-states content to remain Roman slaves forever? And what about Chios? And actually, maybe something I should note here. I was pronouncing it Chios in previous episodes. I do apologise. My pronunciation of Greek places is pretty shabby sometimes. Chios is that little island city-state off the west coast of Anatolia. Remember during the Siege of Rhodes, when that Kayan naval ship accidentally rammed Mithridates' ship? Mithridates broods in his palace complex. He can't get that sailor out of his mind. Is Chios, historically a Roman ally, another nest of traitors? Mithridates has the children of prominent families rounded up, sending them wailing and crying to the remote mines of Colchis. Mithridates no doubt saw some kind of karmic justice here. The Kayans were noted for having introduced the slave trade to the Greek world of antiquity. But how much substance was there to Mithridates' suspicions? How much of this was because a Kayan sailor rammed him at Rhodes? Depending on how we want to portray this, this is typical behaviour of an individual who is marking people as enemies for the slightest of reasons. Rampant paranoia and deep-running mistrust colour Mithridates' thoughts and outlook. The credibility that Mithridates is leading a pan-Hellenic revolution is undermined with actions like this. There are incidents of conspiracy and intrigue across scores of cities and regions of the Mithridatic realm. With Roman armies continuing toward Anatolia, discontent boils under the surface, as Adrienne Mayer notes in The Poison King. Quote, Some of the king's closest associates, alarmed by the events in Greece and western Anatolia, began to hold secret meetings. Prominent Greeks began to reconsider their devotion to Mithridates. Two men of Smyrna invited two men of Lesbos to join a cabal against Mithridates, but one of them, a personal friend of the king, informed on the others. He arranged for Mithridates himself to hide under his couch to hear the plot from their own mouths. The three men were then tortured to death. End quote. I actually find that kind of funny. It makes me think of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia when Frank Reynolds is uh, encased in a leather couch because he wants to hear people badmouthing him. It's almost comical, the idea of Mithridates hiding under a couch, hearing these people plotting against him, and then, you know, appearing, aha, I've got, I've got you. It's just, it's ridiculous, but it's another great moment of colour. Mayer continues, quote, Mithridates' paranoia emerged in full force now. His fears were justified. Betrayals and revolts were not imaginary. But his draconian reactions cut his support among the upper classes, and many people took advantage of the climate of fear to turn in their personal enemies. Mithridates rewarded informers lavishly. Plots continued, very close to home. One night in Pergamon, 80 citizens were discovered planning to murder the king. Mithridates executed them all. According to Appian's sources, about 1,600 men suspected of treason lost their lives in this purge. We don't have the details of how they died, but many of these men must have been involuntary guinea pigs for Mithridates' poison experiments. The king was known to test toxins and antidotes on prisoners condemned to death. End quote. Things aren't looking good for Mithridates' grand imperial plans. 
But this upcoming section of our story is what we may refer to as the midpoint or the big twist. His top generals and advisors, such as Doroilus, Scordius, Metrophanes and Archelaus, are all concerned with the king's methods and mentality. But Mithridates is going to be rescued from this deteriorating situation, ironically, by the Romans. Sulla receives a shot in the arm when Lucullus finally returns to him with a naval force, manned by experienced Rhodian, Cypriot, Phoenician and Egyptian sailors. But in general, Sulla's situation is precarious. He is still technically a public enemy of his own republic, and while his great rival Marius has died, other supporters of the Marian faction of this bitter civil war are still gunning for him. Legions sent by the Marian faction, led by Flaccius, have now bypassed Sulla's location and are pressing onward toward Thrace. Sulla, finally rejoined by Lucullus, is tracking these legions. Calculating that this division among the Romans gives him some sort of leverage, Mithridates orders Archelaus to approach Sulla for peace terms. What it must have taken for Mithridates to come to that decision, swallowing his pride and offering terms to his mortal enemies. It's done for practicality more than anything. Mithridates still has a large army, but it's obvious at this point that his armed forces are no match for the Romans. They've been repeatedly overpowered and butchered by smaller Roman numbers. And Mithridates needs to buy time here. He needs his kingdom to recover while the Romans tear each other apart. Sulla needs something too. He needs to get back home and rescue his supporters from being killed on an almost daily basis. He's only fighting this Mithridatic war with one hand, and he's yearning to get back home and settle affairs there. Both leaders need this war to end. The next scene in our HBO series is going to be a significant one. Sulla and Archelaus meet at the Roman camp in Boeotia. Both are talented military leaders with practical personalities, and the accounts of their exchanges give an impression of two pragmatic people, tossing aside the propaganda and frankly discussing a complicated situation. Of course, the exact dialogue between the two men we may never know, but based on interpretations from page 222 of The Poison King, the exchanges may have transpired something as follows. Archelaus is aware that Sulla is in a desperate hurry to conclude the Mithridatic campaign and return to Rome to kill his enemies and seize power. He suggests to Sulla that he should be happy enough to have retaken Greece and to leave Asia Minor to Mithridates. He even promises Mithridatic support to Sulla in the form of soldiers and ships to take over Rome. Sulla, if he ever smiled at all, surely would have cracked a smirk at such a ballsy offer. He responds with a ballsy offer of his own. Why doesn't Archelaus desert Mithridates and assume the crown of the Pontic Kingdom, with Rome's support? Sulla then lists Mithridates' many crimes and misdeeds, his grasping takeovers of neighbouring Anatolian polities before the war, his seizure of Roman property, land and slaves, and above all else, the massacre of tens of thousands of Romans during the Asiatic Vespers. Sulla throws in an insult, stating that only after he's destroyed thousands of Mithridates' troops does Mithridates want friendship and mercy. Sulla barbs that the pan-Hellenic, eastern crusade that Mithridates launched has failed disastrously, with horrific loss of life for the Greek people. 
Archelaus responds that it was the greedy and bloodthirsty nature of local Roman commanders that caused the fighting to begin. Finally, having let it all out, the two men then agree to a series of terms. Firstly, there will be a return to the territorial status quo of 89 BC. Greece returns to Rome. Mithridates keeps his possessions, such as Colchis, the Bosphoran kingdom and the Black Sea, but he will withdraw from Paphlagonia, Bithynia and Cappadocia, allowing Nicomedes IV and Ariobarzanes I to recover their thrones. Next, Sulla promises that Mithridates will be declared a friend and ally of Rome, upon Mithridates' payment of a fine equal to the cost of the war. Mithridates must give Sulla 70 fully equipped bronze-armoured warships. Mithridates must also release all prisoners of war, including captive ambassadors and officers. All Roman deserters and runaway Roman slaves who had joined Mithridates' armies must be surrendered to Sulla. And there's to be a general amnesty declared, no reprisals against partisans on either side. Again, these terms are taken directly from page 222 of The Poison King, and they're extremely favourable to Mithridates, all things considered. Archelaus obviously pressed upon Sulla's need to return to Rome as soon as possible, but there may also have been a genuine respect between the two men. Some aspects of their agreement were a little more personal, with Archelaus gaining 10,000 acres of land in Euboea and agreeing to accompany Sulla to meet with Mithridates himself. Archelaus also apparently becomes ill on this excursion, and is treated with such kindness and respect by Sulla, that Mithridates begins to suspect something is going on. He's already extremely paranoid, and now one of his top generals is getting quite cosy with Sulla. Mithridates, upon hearing the first reports of these peace terms, begins to wonder if there has been long-term collusion. He ponders back to the battles where Sulla and Archelaus faced off and the Mithridatic forces always lost, such as Chironea and Orchomenus. In my opinion it's a bit of a stretch, but Mithridates is seeing enemies everywhere now. Nobody's above suspicion. Mithridates tries to test their newfound friendship, instructing his envoys to debate aspects of the terms, including the demand for 70 ships and the return of Paphlagonia. This is another great scene in my mind, with Sulla and Archelaus almost now on the same side, while Mithridates' ambassadors stroll in with very dubious demands. They slyly hint that maybe Mithridates could get better terms with Fimbria, at which point Sulla explodes, in this excerpt from the Poison King. Quote, Mithridates has been sitting in Pergamon all this time, directing a disastrous war from afar. He should humbly thank me for not chopping off his right hand, with which he signed the death warrant for thousands of innocent Romans. He'll sing a different tune when I march into Asia. End quote. Archelaus, almost in tears, begs Sulla to allow him to talk to Mithridates directly and salvage this situation from degenerating into war again. But while Sulla is in a tight spot, Mithridates is in danger of overplaying his hand too, as a result of another Roman threat in Anatolia in the shape of the Mariancinian legions under Flaccius. The legions sent by the Mariancina faction to relieve Sulla have had some trouble of their own. Several ships have been lost in a storm in the Adriatic, and burning resentment amongst the survivors has led to a mutiny. Flaccus is murdered by Fimbria, 
who chops off his head and throws it into the Black Sea. With Fimbria in control, the now so-called Fimbrian legions begin plundering and running riot across Asia Minor, pillaging and enslaving and looting and burning, acting as a renegade force under their own command. The Roman Senate declares Fimbria an outlaw, meaning there are now technically two Roman commanders illegally in charge of armies in this war. Fimbria's goal is to take Pergamon and capture Mithridates himself, forever solidifying his name in glory and honour for Rome. This isn't just a threat to Mithridates, however, it's also a threat to Sulla and the precarious peace terms that Roman Pontus have earned out. Sulla marches to destroy these renegade Fimbrian legions. Fimbria, known to be an extremely callous and bloodthirsty individual, savagely sacks several towns along the way, including Ilium, the site of the ancient ruins of Troy. Upon the Fimbrian regions reaching Pergamon, Mithridates flees, convinced that the Pergamines will turn him over to Fimbria the first chance they get. Mithridates gets trapped by Fimbria at Pitane, and for a moment things don't look good. The well-timed arrival of Sulla's lieutenant, Lucullus, and his refusal to use his naval forces against Mithridates, as it would violate Sulla's deal, allows Mithridates to escape. Imagine the emotional and mental anguish that Lucullus must have felt making that decision. He chooses to allow Mithridates, sworn enemy of the Republic, butcher of tens of thousands of Romans, to escape. He just can't stand to support Fimbria either, though. He's a Marian. He's an enemy of Sulla. Loyalty to his commander wins out over loyalty to Rome. This is an issue that the Republic is going to struggle with in the coming decades when individuals become more powerful and more influential than the state. At long last, after fleeing the Fimbrian legions, Mithridates now meets Sulla in person to finalise their treaty. Adrian Mayer in The Poison King gives a detailed account of this exchange, of which another heavyweight scene in our HBO series will closely mirror. Quote, Mithridates, in his old-fashioned Persian finery, walked forward, hand outstretched. Sulla, standing at attention in Roman army attire, stiffly asked whether Mithridates accepted the terms agreed to by his general Archelaus. Mithridates did not reply immediately. Surely, spat out Sulla, it is the victor who has the right of silence, while a suppliant should ask forgiveness. Mithridates broke his dramatic silence, pointing out that he and his father had been good friends of Rome. But Roman ambassadors, governors and generals started this war out of pure greed, the vice of most Romans. They wronged me by taking away Phrygia and Cappadocia. They urged Nicomedes to attack my kingdom. Everything I've done then was in self-defence and out of necessity. I know you are a clever orator, Sulla cut in, always justifying your wrongdoing. You should have sent an embassy to Rome long ago if you thought you were the victim of injustice. You had no right to Cappadocia and Phrygia. Nicomedes attacked you because you sent the assassin named Alexander to kill him and you armed his rival Socrates the Good. You have been planning this war a long time, thinking you could rule over the whole world. That's why you timed your takeover of our Asian province while we were subduing revolts in Italy. You freed our slaves and cancelled our debts. You killed 1,600 men on false accusations. You poisoned the princes of Galatia. You butchered or drowned all the residents of Italian blood in Provincia Asia, including mothers and babies, 
not even sparing victims who fled into temples. What cruelty, what impiety, what boundless hatred you have showed towards us. Mithridates' final card was unspoken. Deal with me, or I deal with Fimbria. Knowing he had the upper hand, he calmly broke in on Sulla's vehement discourse. I consent to the terms agreed by my general Archelaus. Before the crowd, Sulla and Mithridates embraced and sealed the peace of Dardanus with a kiss. What were the sentiments of each man during this intimate, traditional ritual? What passed through Sulla's mind as he kissed the man who had snuffed out the lives of tens of thousands of Romans? End quote. How stomach-churning must this have been for both of them? Enemies who had taken the lives of so many of each other's fellow countrymen. What a bitter pill for all sides to have to swallow. Mithridates returns to Pontus, having agreed to give up large tracts of territory, including Cappadocia, Bithynia and Paphlagonia. Sulla leaves to deal with Fimbria quickly, so he can finally return to Rome and deal with his enemies there. Thankfully for him, the Fimbrian issue was resolved speedily enough, when after his troops defect to Sulla, Fimbria commits suicide in a temple in Pergamon. Many Greeks would surely have wished a far more agonising death for such a monster. The terms set out between Mithridates and Sulla are a fragile piece, and there's plenty of resentment burning among the ordinary soldiers. The Roman troops are far from happy with how leniently Mithridates has been treated. To them, he's been allowed to skip off into the sunset, his crown intact, after murdering tens of thousands of Romans. Sulla, after mopping up and taking vengeance on a few more Greek settlements that aided Mithridates, returns to Rome and wades through rivers of blood, before finally becoming dictator in 81 BC. He leaves behind his ambitious lieutenant, Marina, to hold the peace in Asia Minor. Lucius Licinius Marina, an officer under Sulla's command, who is left behind with Roman legions in Asia Minor to keep the peace of Dardanus intact. Besides the simmering resentment left across Greece and Anatolia on all sides, there's also the fact that the Roman Senate technically hasn't approved this treaty. The conflict we've spent two episodes examining is known to historians as the First Mithridatic War. There won't be a long wait before the second one begins. Dwayne W. Roller, in Empire of the Black Sea, does a wonderful job of summing up the feeling and emotion in the aftermath of the First War. Quote, Mithridates had begun the war by exploiting legitimate grievances against Roman rule in Asia Minor, but in time had gone far beyond this issue. Through attacking Greece, killing many innocent civilians, and letting it be known that an assault on Italy might follow. He failed to recognise that Rome was not as weak or preoccupied as he believed, and when the Romans finally opposed him in the field, his large armies were repeatedly defeated by much smaller Roman ones. The Roman armies were far more experienced and cohesive than the complex military coalition that Mithridates had put together which relied heavily on peoples from the northern limits of his kingdom. After the failure of the Greek invasion, matters deteriorated quickly, 
and as the king became more oppressive, plots against him and his rule were more common. His only hope at the end was his navy, but even that suffered defeat at the hands of the Romans, who were able to levy ships from the most experienced seafaring states in the eastern Mediterranean. That only the Romans were able to do this is another indication of the ultimate shallowness of Mithridates' support, especially outside of Western Asia. The peace terms were quite gentle. Sulla's army grumbled at this. Mithridates' territories around the Black Sea were not even discussed. He accepted almost without question what the Romans offered and went home. Yet one could not underestimate the significance of the war, which came close to excluding the Romans from Asia Minor. End quote. There are far too many issues and grievances left unresolved, and a return to conflict seems absolutely inevitable. So how does it come to be? Mithridates' distrust of Archelaus intensifies, with the king wondering if his general became a little too friendly with Sulla during the peace negotiations. What did they talk about? Did they insult him? Did they conspire? What could Sulla have offered Archelaus to betray Mithridates? And again, Mithridates' mind drifts back to the disastrous defeats at Chironea and Orchomenus. How did such small Roman legions defeat the enormous Mithridatic armies? How could it have all gone so wrong? Surely it was down to betrayal. Archelaus, realising that his life is in danger, defects to the Romans. He presents himself to Marina, the ambitious officer left behind by Sulla to keep Asia Minor in line. This kind of feels like a chicken or the egg thing a little bit. Did Archelaus defect because he was already a traitor? Or did he become one in that moment because Mithridates left him no other choice? Did Mithridates create the preconditions for betrayal by acting as if betrayal was inevitable? It's interesting, I mean, let's not forget that Archelaus accepted 10,000 acres of land from Sulla. Did Mithridates know about that? Maybe Archelaus kind of was playing both sides against each other. Marina is anxious to start a war that he can win and earn himself some glory back in Rome. He's a happy man to see Archelaus ride into his camp. Now he's got an inside man from the Pontic side to mould the situation towards his favour. Marina, like many Roman soldiers, is disgusted at the leniency that Sulla has shown to Mithridates and burns with desire to start the fighting again and destroy this little Greek despot for good. Marina is also well aware, as is Mithridates, that the so-called Peace of Dardanus has not been ratified by the Roman Senate. So why the hell should he abide by it? Why should Roman troops sit back and watch Mithridates recover and strengthen his army and kingdom? It's a scene filled with treachery and loathsome menace. Archelaus is torn. He still loves his king, but the man he's been following is lost. And Archelaus can no longer go where he goes. To save his own life, and to prevent further bloodshed in the future, he agrees to help Marina defeat Mithridates. It's heavy emotional going for poor Archelaus. What about Mithridates? Well, the old king licks his wounds, takes a deep breath and tries to get his house in order. But there's a little trouble brewing in his eastern territories. In Colchis, what's modern-day southwestern Georgia, the natives begin demanding that Mithridates' son, Mithridates the Younger, be crowned their king. 
Mithridates the Younger is yet another son of Mithridates and Laodice the Younger. He commanded his father's troops in some skirmishes in the First Mithridatic War, but performed pretty poorly and was then installed as the king of Colchis. He was promptly removed from this post and executed for allegedly plotting against his father using his newfound power. Colchis is a valuable source of manpower and materials for the kingdom of Pontus, which has, you know, now been much reduced in size. The Colchians desire a monarch, growing dissatisfied with being a mere periphery on Mithridates' radar. There are also some issues in the Bosphorus region, which is located in modern-day Crimea and the Sea of Azov. Another son of Mithridates, Macaris, has been viceroy there for some time, but rest of tribal peoples need a demonstration of Pontic's strength to keep them quiet. Mithridates spends some time building a new navy and training more soldiers in order to do this. Egged on by Archelaus, Marina gets the perfect pretext for escalating tensions, claiming that these Mithridatic military activities are a direct threat to Rome, while their stated purpose of controlling Colchis and the Bosphorus is just a bullshit cover story. What historians refer to as the Second Mithridatic War begins with Marina launching a totally unexpected assault into Cappadocia, killing a number of Mithridatic cavalry garrants in there. Although Mithridates is taken by surprise and is furious over Archelaus' perceived treason, he refuses to take the bait and sends emissaries to Marina to protest that such actions break the Treaty of Dardanus. The Mithridatic envoys, in one last scene before the fighting resumes, are berated and insulted by Marina. It's so easy for him too. He can simply claim the treaty hasn't been given the okay by the Senate, so what exactly makes it binding? Sure, the commander who devised it, Sulla, is gone, hundreds of miles away, and Marina is in charge now. In fact, has he even put his eyes on this so-called treaty himself? This guy doesn't need reasons for conflict, but he certainly has plenty. Marina's legions continue to up the ante, raiding into Pontus itself, burning villages and plundering at will, totally unopposed. Mithridates decides to await the return of Pontic ambassadors he sent to Rome, refusing to retaliate until then. In a purely fictional scene not based on any historical source, Marina is advised by Archelaus on how to bait Mithridates into fighting. They hire an actor to play the Roman commissioner, supposedly the one meant to put Marina's leash back on. They have this actor very publicly whisper and conspire with Marina, in plain sight of Mithridates' spies. The king's patience runs out and he orders his forces to hit back. This is essentially the beginning of what historians call the Second Mithridatic War. But the Mithridatic forces finally score a much-needed victory against the Roman army at the Battle of Halus River. Mithridates himself leads some of the Pontic forces, while his old friend Gordius attacks Marina from the other side of the riverbank. The Battle of Halus River is going to be portrayed as a swift one in our HBO series. We've already had a few large-scale drawn-out battles, and there's going to be a few more before our story is told. New tactics, including retraining infantry in lighter, more Persian-style combat, as opposed to slow-moving, heavy Greek infantry, works rather well. Marina's legions are beaten and he retreats in disarray. But Mithridates doesn't follow through too much on this win. The treaty signed with Sulla, as we well know, isn't official and hasn't been endorsed by the Senate yet, and Mithridates can't risk another open war with Rome. He's just not strong enough yet. But all things considered, he's doing okay. 
For someone who just lost a war with Rome, he still got his life, his crown and his original territory. Vanquished enemies of Rome never fare that well. Cicero, the great Roman statesman and orator, is alleged to have said that Mithridates has done more by being defeated than if he had been victorious. Historical sources also mention other issues within the Pontic realm, such as trouble with the Achaeans. The Achaeans are a tribe in northern Colchis, and were notorious for luring boats into their deserted coastline, and then sacrificing captured sailors. Isn't that just eerie? Mithridates' forces supposedly suffer from ambushes and bitterly cold mountainous terrain as they try to pacify these terrifying people. Mithridates' belief that Sulla possesses absolute power, combined with his own internal security issues in Colchis and the Bosphorus, lead him to thread lightly, adhering to the terms of the treaty with care. He even agrees to give up some of Cappadocia that he won from Marina, all in order to appease Sulla. Mithridates continues to send ambassadors to get official Senate approval for the Treaty of Dardanus. This drags on for years. Unsurprisingly, many in the Roman establishment feel that the war with Mithridates is unfinished. After unexpectedly retiring, Sulla dies in 78 BC, allegedly as a result of living the good life a little too much. Although Sulla was an enemy of Mithridates, with Sulla still alive and in power, Mithridates knew Rome would be somewhat restrained in their approach to him. But with Sulla now dead, that restraint is about to evaporate. Or could it work to Mithridates' advantage? Will there be a power struggle in Rome now? Surely the Senate won't have the will or the time to enforce a treaty they haven't even signed. Mithridates decides to act first. He visits his old ally in the east and son-in-law, Tigranes the Great, ruler of the Kingdom of Armenia. Tigranes has been expanding his own realm since we saw him last. His lands now stretch from the Caspian Sea to Mesopotamia. He has an enormous army, 120,000 strong, with a huge cavalry force of 12,000, including Parthian-style cataphracts. Tigranes is also building a new capital city, Tigranokerta. He truly is a powerful ally and son-in-law to have, and he's going to occupy Cappadocia with Mithridates' approval. With a strong and effective ally to his east, Mithridates now courts one in the west, though not with as much success, a renegade Roman commander named Sertorius. Sertorius was a Roman general and statesman. He was originally a supporter of the Marian Sinna faction, but he fled to the Iberian Peninsula to avoid assassination. Sertorius led a rebellion against the Senate using his Iberian power base, and remained a thorn in Rome's side until he was eventually stabbed to death by his own supporters in 73 BC. Mithridates and Sertorius made contact, with Sertorius promising Mithridates territories across Asia Minor. In reality, he has neither the jurisdiction nor the military means to deliver on any of these promises, and Mithridates seems to be under the impression that Sertorius, who's been waging a very effective guerrilla war against Rome, will one day march on the city and may even crown himself the first Roman king in five centuries. None of this is to be, however and none of this recent Mithridatic activity has gone unnoticed in Rome. His newfound alliance with Sertorius, along with the death of King Nicomedes IV of Bithynia, pushes Mithridates further towards open warfare with Rome again. 
Nicomedes IV had been restored to his throne by Sulla at the conclusion of the First Mithridatic War, and Mithridates is aghast and disgusted to learn that Nicomedes has bequeathed Bithynia to Rome in his will. Surely this is why the Romans had been avoiding legitimising the treaty for so long. They must have known what that spineless sycophant Nicomedes was intending to do. Now, with the certainty of a land border between the new Roman province of Bithynia and Pontus itself, Mithridates feels cornered. This event in our HBO series proves to be the final step towards another major war. Dwayne W. Roller in Empire of the Black Sea describes the threat that the bequeathment of Bithynia to Rome posed to Mithridates. Quote, How long Mithridates was preparing for war is uncertain, but clearly the death of Nicomedes IV and the Roman annexation of Bithynia in 74 BC intensified his actions. Not only did the new province of Bithynia bring Roman territory close to the boundaries of Pontus, but it meant that the Romans now had effective control of the route from the Black Sea to the Aegean. Moreover, much of the local instability that had been a factor in the First War had returned to Asia. The excesses of tax collectors and moneylenders were such that children were being sold into slavery to pay debts. This gave Mithridates a moral cause for war. End quote. Mithridates' armies quickly overwhelm Bithynia. The territory hasn't really been properly organised by the Romans yet. The sources tell us that most normal Bithynians welcome the Mithridatic armies as liberators. We also witness a pitiful slaughter when the fleeing Romans are shut outside of the city gates of Chalcedon, refused entry by the Bithynians. They are butchered without mercy by the Mithridatic forces. Here we go again, right? To both you and I, this is all starting to sound like a routine that keeps eventually bringing us back to the same point. But the events that are transpiring here in fact herald the final Mithridatic War. So who's going to command yet another war against Pontus? Without being tied down in Spain fighting a rebellion led by Sertorius, the command might have gone to a young hotshot by the name of Pompey. Gaius Pompey Magnus, known later in life as Pompey the Great, was a Roman statesman and general. He served in many conflicts of the time, including commands in the Social War, the Sertorian War, the Servile War against Spartacus, and a campaign against piracy in the Mediterranean and Aegean Seas. Pompey was a supporter of Sulla, and earned the nickname Teenage Butcher for his ruthlessness. But the direction of the war for now was to rest with Lucullus. Sulla's second-in-command, who had to let Mithridates escape his clutches at the end of the First War. Lucullus is a solid military mind and a great tactician, as well as a brave leader, but the sources tell us his men had trouble connecting with him. He seemed cold and superior. He is to be joined by Marcus Aurelius Cotta, a Roman politician, general and consul, posted to Bithynia to command legions against Mithridates at the outbreak of the Third and Final Mithridatic War. And of course, Lucullus and Cotta, who are of equal rank, don't see eye to eye on how the war should be fought. Colour me shocked, right? But Lucullus has Archelaus on his staff, and he suggests a direct attack on Pontus itself, while the Mithridatic armies are tied down in Bithynia by Cotta's men. Not too soon after their forces have split up, does Lucullus receive word that Cotta has been routed by a surprise Mithridatic attack at the Battle of Chalcedon. The speed and numerical power of the Mithridatic forces stunned the Romans and their Bithynian allies, 
So much so that Cotta has the city gates shut before thousands of Roman and Chalcedonian troops can even get inside. An assault by Mithridates' Bastarne allies succeeds in smashing through a giant bronze chain protecting the harbour. Cotta, now trapped under siege, watches helplessly as the Mithridatic forces burn or capture several Roman ships. The Bastarne were a tribe allied with Mithridates, hailing from between the Carpathian Mountains and the Dnieper River. Sources tend to differ on how they describe these fearsome warriors, with ethnic labels such as Celts, Germanics and Scythians all being used. The fact that Mithridates could call on their help illustrates the incredibly long geographical reach he had. Lucullus's men grumble. They feel that Cotta should be left to his demise after such a humiliating defeat, and that Pontus should be plundered while it's undefended. But ignoring their complaining, Lucullus marches to relieve Cotta, but he encounters a force led by a one-eyed renegade Roman commander, a pro-Sertorius rebel named Marcus Marius. At a place named Torre, the two forces are about to slug it out, when an astronomical occurrence brings things to a standstill. Adrian Mayer describes this incredible occurrence in The Poison King. Quote, the two armies faced each other on a plain under a clear blue sky, and were just on the verge of combat. Suddenly, the sky burst asunder. A huge flaming object of molten silver ripped through the heavens and slammed into the ground between the two armies. The stunned armies separated, in Plutarch's words, but the retreat must have been frantic. What was this extraterrestrial object? Richard Stothers, a NASA meteorologist who studies ancient observations of astronomical events, has analysed this incident. Because there were thousands of eyewitnesses at close range, he considers Plutarch's account credible. The blinding flash in daylight indicates a high scale of magnitude. To be clearly observed overhead by armies standing just out of bowshot distance, the flaming object, he estimates, must have measured more than four feet across. A fresh meteorite, a meteor that lands and survives impact, is usually black, leading stutters to suggest that the bright silvery colour recorded was that of an incandescent fireball, an extremely bright meteor while it streaked across the sky before impact. Since Plutarch's original Greek terminology indicates that witnesses did examine the object on the ground, it seems safe to say that the battle was interrupted by a spectacular meteorite. Perhaps the crater will be identified someday. End quote. Well, that's going into the show, isn't it? Another wonderful moment of rich, vibrant colour. I just love moments like these so much, and I always try to take note of them while I'm researching so I remember them when I'm recording the podcasts. What a way this would be to end episode 7 of our HBO series. The opposing armies watching each other from opposite sides of the impact crater. Nobody knows what the hell this is. There's an eerie silence on the battlefield. Cut to end credits. So this brings us to the conclusion of episode 6 of this podcast series on the life of Mithridates. Join me next time in our fictional HBO series, The Poison King, as we move towards episode 8, with disasters and crises aplenty. Thank you so much for listening, and take care.
to subscribe to this podcast, just search for the Historical Motion Picture Organization on whatever platform you use, and hopefully you'll find me there. If you want to follow the podcast on social media, you can find me on Twitter by searching at HMPO Podcast, or on Instagram with the handle HMPO underscore podcast. You can find the show on YouTube by searching HMPO Podcast, and you can contact me directly by email at hmpo.podcast at gmail.com. Growing a podcast from humble beginnings is a very difficult thing to do, so if you can support the HMPO in any way, it would mean a lot to me. You can do this by following me on social media, you can share the podcast with even one other person, and you can subscribe to me and give me a good rating on whatever platform you listen on. I will really appreciate it. So thank you for listening, thank you for your support, and I hope you'll join me again soon in the ancient past.